On this special episode of AvTalk, we welcome the Air Current Editor-in-Chief John Ostrauer as we discuss the status of the Boeing 737 MAX and the compendium of reporting that's come out in the last few weeks. We are taking a closer look at how the aircraft was developed, what Boeing is doing to get it back in the air, and how the manufacturer is trying to regain the trust of airlines and pilots around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here with... Jason Rabinowitz, and we have a special guest here once again, John Ostrauer from The Air Current. Hello, John. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So we have a, a special episode today, and we're here to talk only about the 737 MAX and provide an update on the situation we find ourselves in a few months now after the aircraft was grounded worldwide, and it seems like a few months before the aircraft will be back in the air. Today is Wednesday, the 15th of May, and today there was a hearing in the U.S. House of Representatives for the Aviation Subcommittee, which featured members of the FAA as well as the NTSB. And one of the the pieces of news that came out of there was that the FAA expects Boeing to formally submit their MCAS update in a week or so, to quote the FAA director. So I guess we'll take that as our jumping off point. And John, we'll we'll kind of walk our way from where we were last time uh, in in March to the present and, and look a little ahead to, I guess, a few months from now when the aircraft is is now expected to be back in the air. A lot has happened since then. Certainly, you know, we've we've had uh, the airplane uh, was officially granted globally on March 13th. So we're just passing the two month mark here. And what we've seen is a steady drumbeat of, I, I would say, increasing uh, uncertainty about things. Again, I, I think I I think I said back in back in March that we are absolutely closer to the beginning of this than the end of it, and I'm still of that of that mind with everything that's gone on in terms of the regulatory side of it, the certification development side of it, where the airlines how the airlines are feeling about the airplane, and and really you know the the overall perception and sensibility of, of the flying public around the airplane. And so I think there's still a tremendous amount still ahead of us where we don't know how that's going to play out and how this airplane and precisely when this airplane is going to get back in service. I mean, we, you know, we're now seeing reporting that suggests that we're not going to uh, have a return to service until probably later in August. It was early August before that, of course, to September. But, you know, one, one interesting clue was Alaska Airlines in the introduction of their, their first uh, MAX 9 had originally been scheduled for mid-August after all of the grounding scenarios. And now, just in the last week, we saw it it slide to the end of August, August 27th. So that was an interesting hint as far as the timing. But, but again, there are still a lot of moving pieces around technical items, the update to the MCAT system, and, and less tangible items that are, are equally, if not more important, around the trust and the confidence in the airplane by the pilots, the flying public, regulators in both in the US and around the world. So one of the things that came out earlier this week was audio recording of a meeting between US 737 MAX pilots and 
and a, a Boeing unnamed Boeing representative where the pilots were pressing the Boeing representative after the Lion Air crash that happened in, last year. And the pushback that Boeing made to those pilots based on their comments that they didn't know what was in the aircraft or they didn't know all of the aircraft systems. And they basically said, we need to know what's on this airplane. Yes. What's interesting about that meeting was it actually mirrored a meeting that we reported on about a couple of weeks ago between Southwest Pilots Union and the exact same three Boeing representatives. Actually, in the case of the New York Times report, they actually were identified. It was So it was three folks. It was uh, John Maloney, who was the head of state and government relations for Boeing, so effectively one of their chief lobbyists. Mike Sinnott, who is the vice president of, of product development. And also Craig Bomben, who is the chief 737 pilot. And and this meeting took place in Dallas, I believe. There was a similar one on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which was a couple of days earlier, with John Weeks, the president of, of SWAPA, Southwest Airlines Pilot Association, and several other representatives of SWAPA, effectively talking about the same topics. So this was very very much part of a a confidence building roadshow that, that these three were on to talk about, you know, what was going on. And so a lot of the same topics came up with Southwest as well. And the big question was, are there any surprises? And what became clear is that, yes, there, there are other surprises. And we learned about the AOA disagree message software issue, you know, and, and there, there really was this, the, you know, this, the spirited exchange between, you know, the pilots unions and the pilots who, who had just learned about MCAS several weeks earlier and Boeing, who who effectively, who you know, vociferously defended their airplane and didn't, and felt like they had things in hand. Well, you know, what we saw five months later or four months later was was the Ethiopian crash, which obviously it was a very major turning point for this whole situation. Which obviously, in turn, prompt prompts rightfully questions around what was being done back then to ensure that that a another crash didn't happen. And so, you know, at the time, it was well. Okay, well, here's the pilot guidance for how to handle this. Well, in turn, we've seen that that might, that uh, certainly uh, the inquiries are acknowledging that that wasn't sufficient. And we saw that with, with Ethiopian and, and, what, and what happened as far as their use of the checklist. There were other extenuating circumstances that folks have pointed to. But generally speaking, when you have a sequence like this, you clearly something is wrong. So you mentioned a, a spirited discussion between the pilots and the pilots union and and folks at Boeing. And I guess the question on my mind is, at what point is trust eroded so far that it becomes nearly impossible to rebuild? Because when you ask, are there any other surprises? And then, yes, there are many other surprises. And they keep trickling out, which is the thing that, and, and I know we talked about this in March when we discussed where things were then. In Boeing's description of we're going to be transparent, we're going to say things and do things, and everyone's going to see them and understand them. That doesn't seem to be the case. Well, I think that that would imply that, that the situation was under control then, and it was not, as we certainly have seen. I think your core question is, at what point has trust so been eroded that it won't, that it is irreparable? Trust takes time. Trust is, a, is the most important ingredient of the functioning of modern or functioning of life, right? It's about our, our interpersonal relationships. It's about how systems work. It's about, you know, flipping a light switch and having trust that it's not going to kill you, right? It's like, it's, it's something as basic as that, you know, the system is, is done right. It's a very local, personal example, uh, whether it's your family, your friends, you know, trusting, trusting them. In the case of aviation, the entire system 
cannot operate without trust. And, you know, whether it's trust that you're given a proper instruction by ATC, that you're that the pilot up front is is competent and trustworthy, making decisions together with with their co-pilot who also has to be trustworthy in the eyes of you know those operating the plane. So like, you know, you're sitting next to someone and say, well, I trust this person to make good decisions and listen and and and, and have the best interest of everyone at, at heart. And that's the relationship, a CRM relationship that 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 operates. And then you've got people on the ground who are maintaining the airplane and you have trust in them that they've done their their work correctly. And you they and it's all documented, right? I mean there's there are steps, verification steps at every turn, but fundamentally it relies on trust that the documentation is correct and it, that what you're seeing is accurate and that everything is supposed to be where where it's supposed to be and that the aircraft you're flying was designed and approved by regulators who you have trust in who who operate in a way that that foster that trust and cultivate it by through their actions both in certification and design and it goes all the way all the way back to the beginning here so you know, you talk about the series of links that happen the sequence of events that happen in a an aviation accident and the link the common link between them to prevent them is trust and faith in that every other step operates the way it's supposed to when you break that link the trust is broken and so that's what we're facing right now you know it's very easy to break and destroy trust quickly it's very difficult to restore that trust and that takes time and it's not just time in terms of institutional memory or forgetfulness, you know, how long are we going to get over this, but, but the actions that are required to restore that trust. And I don't think from where we sit on, you know, the 15th of May, 2019, that we know or have seen all of the steps that are going to be required to restore trust in Boeing and its product, Boeing and its product development more broadly, the regulatory system and in all of the different stakeholders within that that are going to be essential to making sure that that people forget again about what kind of airplane they're on uh, when they're flying somewhere that it doesn't matter that that again all things being equal you're going to get there just fine so i think we like i said i think we have a long way to go i'm but the restoration of trust is going to be essential to the survival of not just the 737 max but but boeing I think you know when when you when 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 that gets so eroded, it makes it very hard to recover from that. But I think it, it just underscores exactly the necessity of what's what's ahead and why not anything short of not restoring the trust is not an option. John, you touched on something that that I want to go back to, and and that's how Boeing builds airplanes. How do you see how Boeing builds airplanes changing? And let me kind of throw a little bit more in here as far as we've seen a lot of reporting about how the aircraft is certified. And it, do you see a change coming both from Boeing and the FAA, just from Boeing, just from the FAA, and, and how the, the aircraft is designed, built, and certified? I think there has to be. You know, I think that that's that again, it's all part of that restoration of trust. And I think that the restoration of trust is going to require a process change. I think it's going to require a significant amount of introspection. And I think it's going to require an acknowledgement by both Boeing and the FAA that something went wrong here. Because I think that that all of the the signs point to the fact that it did. 
it, something did go wrong here. I mean, if, if you can, if Boeing has to acknowledge that they were a link in the chain and they can break that link in the chain, something went wrong. If they could do something demonstrably different to avoid an accident in the future with the design of their system, then yes, then, then something has gone wrong. Why it's gone wrong is something that they are trying to answer for themselves right now. I think they are extraordinarily close to the rock face. And I think that, that one of the key pieces that I keep hearing from folks in industry, folks at airlines, pilots unions, that, that there, there has to be a, a strategic acknowledgement, not just a tactical one that, oh, we could, we should have done something differently. We could have designed the system differently. So we'll make it better, but a strategic acknowledgement that something has gone wrong here and that the way the business, the enterprise is operating has produced this outcome and it has to ask itself why it produced the outcome. And so that, like I said, that level of introspection, those the, the the changes, whether in leadership or process, leadership and process, are going to be essential to rebuilding that trust, and not just and not change for change's sake, to show that you're you're rearranging deck chairs, but genuine acknowledgement um, that the structure by which you 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 design that 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 created this design needs to change. And one other big component of this is that stems from the American political system is that the FAA has been a political football and and its funding and it's how it does business whether it's you know talking about privatization for a, a, a VR space whether it's the, the perennial debate between you know user fees between general aviation and business aviation and and the airlines and how the system actually operates as a safety regulator is also something that's going to going to require serious amounts of introspection because look the the system itself has been massively underfunded for a very very long time and the FAA you know effectively acknowledging that that their the changes in their budget and their role has required a, a significant level of of delegation of safety analyses to manufacturers whether it's Boeing or others so in turn the structure of how of how the FAA responds to this is going to be equally as important from a structural strategic perspective as it is for Boeing itself. So I, I guess we can expand that question and, and say, is the trust in the FAA necessary to rebuild? And, and who needs to trust the FAA? I mean, I, I keep thinking about, I buy tickets on a plane, but I don't buy the plane. So Boeing's, ostensibly Boeing's trust market is much smaller than the general public. But maybe that's changing now because of this. I mean, you you ran a, a very, very unscientific Twitter poll, I think, last week, where you asked when it's back in the air, will you fly it? And and there have been some other polls since then that, that were a bit more robust in their in their analyses. But but they were basically the same answer. Yeah. And you know, 48% in that poll, 48% of people said, you know, I, when the 737 MAX comes back to service, I will not feel comfortable flying on the airplane. So what I find interesting is, number one, you've got social media in the mix. And you've got a different media environment where people are, are much more aware uh, of all of this. And so you take that and you, you marry that to the idea of what has actually increasingly become an effort to market air, the appeal of an airplane directly to passengers, which is probably a, a side point. But, but I think in terms of – and we first saw this with the 787 and the A350, that the attributes of the airplane 
and essentially a, just a, you know, a, a kind of a pushback against commoditization. You know, it's like they're all the same. Well, they're not all the same because there's something different about the, the, the experience of this. But that that they, the branding, the marketing made the general public far more aware of what they were flying on inherently. Whether they were buying on that or not, they were still probably buying the cheapest ticket, but that they were aware um, that they were being marketed to in terms of the experience of the airplane as an extension of the brand of the airline. So I think it, the flip side of that is that you get a public perception that is inherently associated to a given airplane. And, you know, the Dreamliner, the Max, the Neo, the XWB to a lesser extent. So I think that that we're seeing a lot of increased public awareness as an outgrowth of that as well. Yeah, John, I would say that's absolutely correct. In, in recent years, th- there's definitely been a push to make passengers maybe not completely aware, but try to make them more aware of what aircraft they're flying, especially airlines like Delta. They'll say flagship A350 or new airplane A220 or C-Series or whatever they're calling it still. The MAX has definitely seen a lot more in-your-face public awareness than really any other aircraft recently, especially here in the US since we have three major airlines all flying it right now, or were flying it at least. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me about the the Max branding, though, is that there's ostensibly, I mean, with the major airlines, as far as Americans concerned, I, I'm not enthusiastic about flying that particular aircraft because of the interior. If it's a Southwest aircraft, you don't really notice a difference on the inside. And I can't speak to United because I haven't I haven't flown that one. But but that's what's interesting to me about the Max is that it's become not because it's a brand new airplane or it's an you know there's there's interior kind of marketing to it, but that Max just kind of stuck. I, I guess did the branding job, but unfortunately in this case, the branding's now stuck in I wouldn't even know what to call it. Purgatory. I mean we don't have there an airplane. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't have an air, an airplane that has either faced, con, you know, the official condemnation for all eternity or, and it, ha, and it hasn't, and, and it's also not back on its way flying again. So, you know, we are still in the middle of the grounding and I, I would, Boeing did surveys back in 2013 to assess the state of the Dreamliner brand. And, you know, very different situation, similar, but different, right? There were, you know, the, the big difference obviously being the, the, there was no loss of life when the Dreamliner was grounded because of the batteries in 2013. So you're dealing with an inherently different structural situation. There are also a lot fewer air- airlines flying the airplane, a lot fewer countries, a lot fewer regulators involved, a lot fewer aircraft that, that are out there. So, you know, look, I, I, I always assumed and that, and, and many folks I talked to always assumed that once the NG and the CO, the A320CO exited production, that they just go back to being the A320 and the 737 again. I think that may be the case once again. I think regardless of, of the crashes of the MAX, I think that that will be the case. But there are a lot of discussions that are going on around, you know, how do you remove the association between MAX and a lack of safety? A perception of lack of safety from the flying public, and I think that that's a that's a big that's a big part of again the communications challenge when this airplane comes back in service. So let's take a moment to discuss what it's going to take to get the the aircraft back in service. The FAA administrator Elwell said today that the 
the FAA was expecting Boeing to formally submit its MCAS update to the FAA for certification within a week or so. John, can you maybe walk us through a little bit about what Boeing is actually submitting to the FAA? So my understanding is that it's twofold. It's it's the updated software. And so that's that's changes in the 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 magnitude and operation of, of MCAS in terms of how many times it fires, how how much authority it has, so on and so forth. The other piece is obviously the uh, changes in in training, training materials that are that are going to come along with that in terms of what's going to be offered to 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 pilots to make them aware of how the new system works and how it kind of fits with with um, with what they know about the the differences between the NG and the Max. There is going to be a, a flight test conducted by the FAA. So essentially, they'll, Boeing will take the FAA up on what was almost certainly to be the um, one of the Max Seven test aircraft, which are currently only active test aircraft seven three seven test aircraft instrumented test aircraft in in Boeing's inventory at the moment. And do the demonstration certification flight on that uh, that aircraft. There will be additional reviews and uh, technical analyses of, of the changes and, and how it fits. And then presumably they will grant certification of that software package and the training. And you will have at some point an airworthiness directive that requires all aircraft, an aircraft to be updated and pilots to be trained on this standard as a precondition for a return to service. It's possible I'm missing a step or some component here, but that's generally probably going to be how it, how it will, will unfold. And one of the questions at this point, and it might be too premature to answer because the FAA hasn't actually seen the update or anything like that, but is there a, a growing kind of consensus one way or the other among the pilot community about whether the type of training that they want to have versus the type of training that, that Boeing thinks is appropriate once the update has been approved and certified. The FAA is not going to require additional simulator time. They said that, that that's not that's not required for the changes that are going to be made. Transport Canada has said otherwise. Mark Garneau, who's the Minister of, of uh, Transport for Canada, has said they do want to require it for any aircraft operating in, in, in Canadian airspace. No, notably, just as kind of an aside, Air Canada, because the MAX was a new type for the, for the airline, they actually were the first to have simulators because they needed to put their, their crews through simulators to get their, their transition type ratings. And they weren't coming off of NGs because they weren't, because Air Canada didn't have any NGs. So they, they're, they have a different level of ability to, to, to do that. However, whether or not you require, you know, it's a United or American wants to fly the MAX to Canada whether or not they would be required to do that as well is, is sort of a interesting Pandora's box question. But generally, as far as where the where things stand right now with the FAA, they are not requiring simulator time, additional simulator time on the airplane. And the debate goes this way, to test or evaluate or demonstrate the new software, you'd have to ask first ask the question, what are you training for? And, and, the, and the airlines say, well, we're, you're not training you're significantly reducing the the magnitude or operation of MCAS. It would only fire once and not outside of a you know a magnitude that you would otherwise expect, or, or it's a less of a, a change in the horizontal stabilizer angle to respond to this this high angle of attack. You know, it's what are you testing for? And the reality is that's it's a fair argument. I think that the thing that that a lot of airline pilots, not so, not a lot, uh, some airline pilots have, have re- relayed to me is that that the condition that 
they might want to spend more time looking at has actually very little to do with MCAS, but has a lot more to do with what happens if the airplane gets significantly out of trim and how do you respond to that? And there was a an article in Aviation Week a couple of days ago about a, a, a pilot who, as part of their recurrent training, actually took a, a 737 simulator, an NG, and set it at 10,000 feet and 250 knots with the horizontal stabilizer trim nose down by two degrees, which was which happened to be where the Ethiopian crew found itself after their MCAS activation at the point that they actually deactivated the, the stabilizer trim system, electric stabilizer trim system to cut out MCAS. And you know, this this pilot reached descents of six thousand feet per minute during the recovery. And, you know, again, coming down from 10,000 feet, you have some margin. You don't have that same margin if you're at 1,500, like, uh, you know, in this situation for uh, um, what happened in Ethiopia. So the conclusion of this pilot and their account, who notably the, the air current has also spoken to, effectively said the goal was just to not get significantly out of trim in the first place. You know, what that does around the question of how much simulator time you need, what what you would be training for, what what precisely you would be be checking for um, in terms of its the familiarity of the system. Absent any changes to MCAS, I think that, that understanding what a malfunction looks like is something that, that, that I think a lot, a lot of pilots want to understand. With the changes, I think that, again, you know, airlines come back to, well, what are we training for? And pilots are asking, well, what are we training for if the system doesn't even allow you to get significantly out of trim based on the new criteria? But I think that's going to be the, the debate we see here. And, you know, I think we kind of cross into the unknown unknowns around has everything been accounted for that that you can that you that can be accounted for as far as making sure pilots are ready should there be either an erroneous MCAS activation or some other failure of the system that causes it to activate and 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 cause the the airplane to trim itself down that's a very long way to say i think the simulator question is going to be one that that is maybe more on a on a case by case basis but i think understanding why the simulator time would be required and what the purpose of it is going to be very, very important. And I think notably also a component of restoring trust in the airplane and ultimately pilots, you know, some pilots confidence in what they're potentially looking at when they're flying the airplane after it's, it's ungrounded. John, one of the, the last things I want to touch on in our conversation today is I want to jump to today's hearing and in in his prepared remarks, uh, NTSB Chairman Sumwalt touched on this and I thought spoke very eloquently about how you know training worldwide and, and piloting the aircraft worldwide and then also moving on to some of the comments made by I, I think it was the, the ranking, ranking member on, on the aviation subcommittee and, and discussing how you know pilots are, are trained around the world to, to fly a single aircraft and, and maybe different standards of training around the world. And there's been, and since both of these crashes, there have been comments from uh, a number of places, including uh, members of the US Congress, saying that you know these crashes can be attributed to, basically saying the tra- crashes can be attributed to you know training worldwide. And I want to kind of pick up a conversation there about I can't think of a way to express how wrong that is 
but also kind of how insidious that is. Let's read the quote from uh, Chair Sumwalt first, as he basically closed out the entire hearing. And this is his exact quote. We've heard questions about pilot training and the different standards around the world. If a manufacturer is going to sell airplanes around the globe, then it is important that pilots operating those planes in those parts of the globe know how to operate them. To say that the U.S. standards are very good and that this might be a problem in other parts of the globe is not the answer. The airplane has to be trained to the lowest common denominator. And I think that, as you said, Ian, sums it up extremely well. I think that that captures it. And I think that there has been a, in some cases, it borders on xenophobic in terms of some folks' argument around the, you know, what non-U.S. pilots can do or are capable of, or, you know, this a superiority complex that, you know, kind of a right stuff where, you know, only our pilots can operate this plane safely, which, you know, until Southwest starts flying intra-Africa, or intra intra Asia is a is a completely ridiculous argument in in large measure. So I think the you know the, the irony of members of Congress making an argument uh, about the trust in the airplane as it relates to international crews and how they are trained is that they actually take another axe to restoring trust in Boeing and and the airplane by saying only. Yeah, or, or or the suggestion that only U.S. trained pilots are capable of operating this this aircraft safely, because in turn, what it does is it reinforces a a perception of a lack of safety around around the airplane, requiring a an exceptionally trained aviator beyond the normal standard to operate it. And I think Sumwalt hits exactly that that point that you know the 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 secondary unintended effects of of, of that. Of that implication is number one a limit to growth, which is well if you're if you're not designing your airplane to be flown safely by the lowest common denominator. By the way, that, that's a certification requirement. That's not a, a, a philosophical or cultural requirement. You know, you can see all over the certification regs that systems are are certified. Explicit language said without requiring extraordinary flying abilities or you know essentially. Any, any additional skills from the lowest common denominator, and you see that all over all over the place. So I think if the system is going to operate safely and trust is going to be restored in Boeing and its products, this argument around international pilot training is one that does fundamentally does the airplane and the company and the industry as a whole a pretty significant disservice. John Ostrauer, editor in chief of the Air Current, I want to thank you so very much for joining us today for a special episode of AvTalk to discuss where the 737 MAX program is now and, and where we might be in a few months' time. I am Ian Pechenik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you once again, John, for your insight. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, guys. Mm-hmm.